Welcome to Chem Talk. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we interviewed Dr. Jen Heemstra, a professor at Emory University. Before we get started, let's hear from Scott as he talks more about Dr. Heemstra. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Scott from Chem Talk. Jen Heemstra is a professor of chemistry and a research scientist at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She also writes for one of the top chemistry magazines in the world, Chemical and Engineering News. And with over 83,000 Twitter followers, she is one of the most followed research scientists on social media. And she often uses her platform to talk about mental health and other helpful topics. Her research group studies the self-assembly properties of nucleic acids. We discuss all of this and more in the following conversation, which lasted over two hours. Even though I had never spoken with Jen before, I felt like I had known her for quite a while. In this awesome conversation, we discuss her journey from undergrad to where she is now, the power of Twitter, the freedom of academia, coping with failure and fear of failure, being a STEM communicator, and most importantly, how she can make her own rock climbing chalk. I hope you enjoy. We're really happy here to be with you. Professor Heemstra, Jen, and just to, to introduce us all, I'm Scott from ChemTalk, and this is Nafisa, and we're here with Professor Jen Heemstra at Emory University. You got your promotion to full professor is underway, and it's, it's, it's interesting that you've come, you know, so far in your career because the visa and I were, were joking that it almost didn't happen because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were applying for a postdoctorate, right? And the postdoctorate assistant thought you might be getting pregnant. And he's like, well, if you, if you get pregnant, you're not going to work hard enough for us. And, you know, we may not do the best we can. And so you had to, to work at, how do you say it, ob- obiter research? Yeah, obiter. Oh, obiter. obiter. Well, yeah. when, I, when we saw it, we read it as obiter and it sounded like obituary. And we're like, okay, working at <laughs> obiter is Jen Heemstrom's obituary for her academic career. We are like, cause you could have, your, your, your plans for academia could have died at obiter, right? Um, yeah, yeah, well, there's a little bit of a story behind the story there. That's not like on my Wikipedia page or anywhere yeah. else. But, um, but I was, when I was getting ready to graduate, um, you know, there's kind of two narratives here. One is the narrative of I, for many years, from when I was like late in my undergrad until literally right before I applied for jobs, I knew that I really, really wanted to be doing exactly what I'm doing now, which is one, to be a professor at a major research institution and be running a lab and doing the science and mentoring and all of that stuff. Um, But I thought it was just completely impossible. I was like, there is no way. I look at what my professors do and I could never do what they do. So there was like the whole narrative of self-doubt. The second part of the narrative is that you know, I had this challenging situation with a postdoc advisor. And so I was graduating and had lined up a postdoc. And then on the day of my defense, 
the person I was supposed to work for called me up and said, Hey, you know, I, I know I offered you a postdoc position, but I've been thinking about it. And, um, you know, it was a lab that did organic chemistry. So working with solvents and kind of toxic chemicals. And at the time, this has changed a lot, thankfully, but at the time it was kind of considered that if, you know, especially in academic science, you know, it was different in industry, but in academic science, if there were so few women who got pregnant while working in academic science, it was like so unbelievably, unbelievably rare in chemistry. That, that it was just considered like, well, then you'd have to just quit lab for nine months. You'd have to quit your research yeah. for nine months if you became pregnant. So this person Please. said, oh, well, I can't have that happening. So I'm going to take back my postdoc offer and you actually can't come postdoc for me. You might guess that this person did not have a lot of women working in their lab. Yeah. Um, you know, might come as a shocker to you. Um, and that was a really terrible experience, but it, it was actually a really important one for me as well um, because I realized that, you know, goodness, if, if someone isn't supportive of you and your goals, then they aren't worth your time. Um, if I had taken that postdoc, I think I probably would have been so miserable and I, that person would have had a style and of running their lab that would have made me like hate science and I would probably have left chemistry altogether. Um, but instead, yeah, I decided to take an industry position because, you know, cue the self-doubt thing that was going on. Um, and, and that was good too, because it, it made me realize that I really do love academia and that while industry is a great place to be, it wasn't the best choice for me personally, for the things that are important for me the things that I wanted to be able to do in my career, I really needed to be in academia instead. And so it gave me the nudge I needed to apply for postdocs again and um, applied and got an offer with an absolutely amazing scientist and amazing, amazing human being, uh, David Liu, who is now extremely famous because of of, uh, base editing and gene editing and had a phenomenal experience and was so fortunate to get to work in that lab. And also the other thing that kept me from leaving science through all of this is I had an absolutely amazing, well, amazing mentors, plural before that, that my undergrad advisor and my PhD advisor were both phenomenal mentors who through all of these different twists and turns just kept standing by me and supporting me and saying, we're going to make this work out and you can do it and you should keep running at these goals. A blessing in disguise, big time. Yes. You know, and I think that those stories sadly are not, my story is not unique. You know, it might be a little bit unique in the whole, you know, pregnancy angle and day of my defense. Um, But this idea that, um, there are things that close certain doors, but sometimes um, those are those are things where if you'd walked through it, it might have made you leave science. And and the answer is not that early career researchers should just then figure out how to navigate that. The answer really needs to be that we make healthier academic systems right. where people don't have to make those choices or have those experiences. And that's really the big, something I care deeply about in the long term. And thankfully a lot of other people do as well. But you do think that adversity has made you stronger in some ways. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. There is no teacher like adversity, right? I don't, I don't know. Have you found that in your own experience? Personally, like, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you a little bit competitive, you know, I don't, I try to like learn from adversity and, and, and failure. Um, so I think it's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, but if you talk about that enough, you know, there may be some people who don't want any diversity and they may not want to hear that. Um, but that's, that's not me. It's a really tricky one. You know, some of the things that I've gone through, I would never wish on anyone else, but at the same time, I can see that I wouldn't be the person I am without them. I wouldn't be motivated or inspired or have the knowledge to do the thing that I'm doing. And so it's, it's always a tricky thing. And I, I think maybe, you know, my place is like, or my opinion on it is we shouldn't, you, we should avoid avoidable adversity. Yeah. You know, that like in a PhD, a PhD should be challenging, but it should be challenging because science is challenging. It should yeah. be challenging because an experiment fails because we don't understand something. And then we go and troubleshoot it and we learn something new. It shouldn't be challenging because the people around you aren't supportive of you. Right, right, right. Right. In fact, you also lead a research program, right, in chemistry education and how students perceive failure. So would you say this was sparked by your personal experiences? Uh, That's a great question. You know, I I would say yes, except that my own personal experiences, I think, are, are, are not unique, that Yes, it was sparked my, by my personal experience in that I have failed a lot. I once tried to add it up for one of my classes that I was teaching, and I went back and started to do the math and realized, okay, I've been doing science for this many years, which is this many days that I worked in the lab, and I failed on average or had an experiment fail this many times per day, and I arrived at some answer that I have literally failed tens of thousands of times in the lab. And I think that I'm probably not alone in that. But maybe what was different is that uh, I just really, I love chemistry and I also am really interested in all of the things that bump into how we do chemistry and how we do science in general, but aren't the science itself. And so it was actually my PhD advisor who about six years ago asked me if I had read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And I said, no, I haven't read it. And he said, you should read it. Here's what it's about. And I read it. And the thing I bumped into that, that just completely hit me and made me realize how important this is, is where she talks about essentially how if we are afraid of failure, we, our tendency can be from certain, you know, mindsets, our tendency can be to engage in, you know, self-handicapping or self-sabotaging behavior, because then when something doesn't work, we have an excuse for it. And I realized that we, I was leading a lab we work in a field where we are going to walk into work and we are going to fail every day. And if we are afraid of failure, then we are not going to be doing research the best way that we can do it. 
And so it actually started in my research group. I bought a copy of Mindset for everyone in our lab. We were going on a retreat. We had a discussion about it and what it meant for us as researchers. And then shortly after that, I realized, wow, yeah, if you do research, you learn all about failure. But if you are an undergraduate student taking classes and you don't get to work in a research lab or you haven't yet, you know, when are you going to learn about that, right? It's not in your gen chem classes, you're converting moles into grams and grams into moles or balancing redox equations. And maybe we need to bring this into the classroom more. And, and certainly there is a ton that's been done um, with mindset and fear of failure in the K-12 space, um, but very relatively little had been done at the college level. And so we got interested in that and started doing a little bit of what you call you know, educational interventions where we engineered different things into the curriculum that would help to teach about fear of failure and help students overcome that fear of failure. And then as I started talking about that at conferences, I realized that other people were interested in as well. I also realized that I am not an education researcher and I am definitely not a psychologist and that to do this better would require those sorts of collaborations. And so when we moved to Emory, we had the opportunity to build upon this work and um, decided to just go for it and launch it as a nationwide collaborative. And so I got in touch with a couple of friends who I knew were also interested in this area and had expertise in this area. And we formed an interdisciplinary network of people like me who are STEM instructors who you know, got our PhDs in, in a science and teach science classes. We have education researchers who know how to design these interventions and psychologists who understand all of the underlying principles. And we get together and do research that, that helps students um, cope with fear of failure and all sorts of things. And now we've actually expanded out and, and the research that we now support goes beyond even mindset or fear of failure and encompasses all of what um, many people call intrapersonal factors. So factors such as belonging as well. That sounds That's awesome. amazing. It's a lot of fun. You know, this is the fun thing about academia. Often people ask me, we'll do something like this. And someone will ask me, well, who told you you could do that? I said, no, I'm in academia. I did it because <laughs> nobody told me I couldn't. And I think that's actually made, what made me love research, too, right? You go into the lab and you set up an experiment and you're not doing it because someone told you to. You're doing it because you want to and nobody told you you can't. I don't know. Has that been your experience for both of you? It has to be funded at some level though, right? Like, at well, some that's point, true. It had to be in under some grant. Well, yeah. So that's that's a totally fair point. That the the funding that you get definitely tells you what research area you have to work in, right. and it tells you you know, you're funded to work on specific problems, and you're initially funded to work on them in very specific ways. So you have to write a proposal that says, here's why this area is important, here's what's been done, but here's what hasn't been done yet and kind of the gap that's keeping us from moving forward in the field. And then here's what we propose to do in order to address that. And then you lay out a very detailed plan of how you're going to do that so that you can 
convince the funding agency that yes, indeed, you do have a plan and you have the expertise and you have the knowledge to be successful in it. I would say though that that plan still, you know, you write a grant and it's about your proposal, generally about 12 to 15 pages, but then those 12 to 15 pages, only half of which is actually describing the experiments you're going to do because the other half is talking about why it's important. So in those six or seven pages, you're describing often three to five years worth of research. Yeah. And so even though you lay out a plan, when people go into the lab and do that, there's still a lot of freedom. And most of the funding agencies also realize that things don't always go according to plan or sometimes some new method gets published that you yeah. want to use instead. And so they do have often some freedom for you to go and talk to the funding agency and say, it seems that there's a little bit of a better way to do this. Yes, we're still going to work on this problem and we're still going to deliver these things uh, in return for the federal funding or with your federal funding. But could we do it this slightly different way instead? So there's a lot of flexibility because they realize too that, that science doesn't always go as planned. And if you only fund science that is a hundred percent certain to work. Well, then it's it's not even really research anymore, and it would be impossible to innovate. And and it's not like they're sending in like grant inspectors, right, to like make sure that every experiment <laughs> is exactly what was in the proposal. No, thankfully, no. That would be. I'm not prepared for that level of paperwork. Nothing in my, in my training has prepared me for that, either uh, psychologically or even just administratively. So yeah, we, have, we, we do have to, there is oversight though. So for the general public, you know, your taxpayer dollars are what fund a lot of the scientific innovation in our country. So things yeah. like if you've heard about gene editing, all of that initial work was done at universities and largely funded by federal agencies like the National Institutes of Health. And then that comes from taxpayer dollars. And so there definitely is a very healthy accountability. And so every year we write a progress report for every grant that we have. And we have to write up a narrative that says, here were our initial goals. Here's what we plan to get done in this last year. Here's what we actually got done. And then if there's any gap between what we planned and what we actually got done, then we have to explain that and, and explain why changing things a little bit was actually beneficial because it allows us to address a more important problem or do something in a better way. Are, are those public record? I believe that those are not. Okay. Because they may be FOIAable, but not sure. We, the abstracts, there definitely are public. Every time you get a grant funded, at least with the NIH and NSF, there is a public facing abstract that anyone could search okay. on the internet. Because a lot of research groups seem to, even though they're using public money, they, they keep what they're doing confidential until they they public, publish their paper because they don't want another research group to steal their work or their idea, um, you know, because we, we show a lot of our own chemistry and experiments, but if we see someone, you know, post something really cool, we'll say, hey, tell us about this. We want to share it and show people how amazing chemistry is. 
And sometimes I'll say, oh, we can't share it with you. You know, it hasn't been published yet. And then I always swear under my breath and say, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tricky because, you know, somewhat you could say that patents, some people would say that patents have a chilling effect as well in that it, it publishes it, but it prevents other people from being able to use it unless they license that patent. But at the same time, if there wasn't the ability to patent things, that would have a very chilling effect on innovation from the industrial side. And so I would guess that, I would say that the publishing is a little bit similar, that if all of the data had to be made available as soon as we got them, and you knew that anyone could just come in and take your data and publish it before you did, then it it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to the students and postdocs who work on the projects. But that being said, I think that publishing has changed a lot in the last couple of years. There are what what are called preprint servers, which I'm guessing you're extremely familiar with at this point too. And that is really changing how we publish at least. You know, we still hold on to our data until they're ready to share, right. but instead of holding on to the data until you have the story and then sending it to a journal and then waiting months or sometimes even years before that work is out and published and you can talk about it, now we actually basically just put that publication online for people to see as soon as it's ready to go. And then in tandem with that, we send it to a journal who then considers it and reviews it. And eventually you still want it to come out in a journal because we still run on this system of peer reviewed publications, but it, it allows data to get out to the public much, much more quickly. And in fact, I think with the, the COVID-19 pandemic has you know firmly cemented preprint servers in the, the publishing ecosystem like forever, right? That, you know, when they had data on how long immunity lasts to COVID, you don't want to have that tied up for six months waiting to be published in a journal. You, you eventually want to publish it in a journal, but yeah. the ability of researchers to put these out onto the bioarchive or the med archive um, and get those data out to the community very quickly was really, really important. And and the caveat has always been that it's not peer reviewed yet, but it's still out there for the community. And if a lot of people see it and comment on it, then that's essentially a format of peer review. You know, it's functionally no different from the peer review itself. Speaking of which, um, you just reminded me of something. Um, I know you have a presence on Twitter and I've identified Two of, your, two of your tweets that are my favorite tweets. One that is just because I'm just really impressed by it. And I think that um, it, was, it was quite amazing. Um, and then the other one was just, is just funny. And it's funny that it's one of your most popular ones, but I don't even know if you want to guess as to what I'm going to come up with for your two best tweets. Oh man, I could probably guess the funny Guess the funny one. Okay, well, I guess it's one of two. It's either my one about the Oxford comma or it's the one about my PhD advisor and how I graduated. The funny one is the CC is carbon copy and you explained it to a 12-year-old and he just didn't, he just like shook his head. He's like, that's stupid. Oh yeah, he just looked at me like that, 
that was a thing that's like did you grow up with dinosaurs mom what what even is that I, I don't know do oh, you, is that your son do you have was, those sorts of interactions was that your son yes it was with my teenage now teenage son yep how old are you? you have two kids right I do have two kids yes how old are they they're 13 and 8 right now oh wow mine are 6 and 10 Oh, those are such fun ages too. Yes, we are like living our best life right now. I don't know. My my 40s has been my best decade yet. Do, do you do any home uh, What science? would you say? Do you do any home science with them? A little bit. You know, they they are fascinated with labware in general. When our older son was probably 4 or 5 years old, we, he, we were teaching him how to read and every 20 lessons he got through, there was a nice little prize that came with it. And he had come into lab with me and seen all the stuff we were working on. And I remember for one of his prizes, what he wanted was a set of the boxes that hold little Eppendorf tubes. So these, you know, little like one inch tall tubes that you put different solutions in. And so that's what we bought him. I went on Amazon, you can get a lot of labware on Amazon. And I bought him a you know, bag of Eppendorf tubes and a, a bunch of tube racks. And he would fill them with food coloring and solutions and you know, move them. I had some pipettes that I had bought myself for some outreach stuff we were doing. And so I brought a pipette home and that's we awesome. got him pipetting these food coloring solutions between things. And yeah, we order, we don't do... The type of science that I do is not so, it's not like um, immediately thrilling right. to kids because, okay, we're going to pipette, you know, one drop of this colorless solution into this other tube with a few drops of this colorless solution. And then we're going to put it in an instrument right. and then we're going to pipette into a piece of jello and run electricity through it. And then we're going to look and see this little rectangular thing that glows. And depending on where it is in the piece of jello, we're going to either be sad or happy. It's not exactly, you know, the stuff of, um, you know, fifth grade imaginations or anything. So, so, and so, we, so we actually buy kits for our science to do. I don't know. What do you do? What do you do we with your solve, kids? We, that, so that's one of the problems we're solving. There's nothing out there. Did you say they're eight and 13? Yes. Okay. So we've actually come up with a series of family experiments that are, that are awesome. Uh, I don't know. Nafisa, cool. do you have a favorite one of the, the family experiments we've come up with? I really like that one where your daughter drew a drawing with the... Oh, the Prussian blue, the ferrocyanide. Yes, the Prussian blue. And she, she made such a cute drawing with it. It was that was where we made ferric ferrous cyanide as a family. We made it and then all painted with it. I have one personalized for the Heemstra family. What is it? Tell me so about the it. The Heemstra family is going to take baking soda and it's going to cook it in the oven at 450 degrees for an hour and synthesize sodium carbonate. And you're going to weigh it before and after so they can appreciate the carbon dioxide that was driven off. And then, and this is all on our YouTube channel, you're going to synthesize magnesium carbonate precipitate, filter it, dry it, and you're going to use that as your climbing chalk for your rock climbing. 
Nice. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's so perfect. We can make our own at-home climbing chalk. You can make it Fantastic. for climbing, for gymnastics. And it's going to be I better, love it. Than, better than, um, you know, what you buy off the shelf. So, you know, it, it, you talk about climbing chalk, and that's definitely one of those places where, as a chemist, you look at the ways that things are marketed and it, you kind of just smile, right? Yeah. Because... You're like, well, that's probably not, you know, there's no extra dry, you know, magnesium carbonate. Yeah. So speaking of the, the Heemstra family, you're going you're gonna to either love this or hate this. So Navisa and I <laughs> took you and all the data about you, and we've distilled your life into one word. You have to tell me what it would be if it was you and all of your bios and families. What would be <laughs> your one word before you tell me my word? So this word is, is in a scientific perspective. So it's, it's not socially or online. It's, it's, we took all of your scientific stuff. Um, I don't know, for me, what would it be? Mm. I know, right, I, I, I caught you redirecting there. I thought you were gonna redirect and completely avoid my question. So I'll give you, I'll keep talking. So you have like five seconds to think about it. You and Nafisa, but if you, you took all of the Nafisa, do you have an idea for yourself? And I'll think of one for me. I, I have to think about it. You were asked first, so you can. <laughs> That's some good leadership. I like that. It could be fish. Now tell me why. A, 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 why a, a hobby of mine is diving and photographing marine life. But oh, that that's cool because as a nucleic acids and, and kind of you know, chemical biology researcher, I hear fish and I hear fluorescence in situ hybridization. Right. But well, you need literally the fish. Like you need the fluorescence to correctly identify the enantiomer, right? Well, oh, for that. So we do some stuff with fluorescence with enantiomers, but right. fish tells you where nucleic acids are in a cell. So it's oh, a really powerful, it only works on dead cells. Okay. Um, so it, it has some limitations, but it's a way that you can see different sequences of nucleic acids inside of cells or in the case of looking at RNAs. So DNA is all in the nucleus, but RNAs can be anywhere in the cell. And so it's really useful to be able to stain and see where specific RNAs are within the cell. You kind of get this like lit up map of, of where they are. It looks a little bit like, you know, a picture of the night sky, but that's really cool. Nafisa, did you come up with one for yourself yet? Maybe carbon. Carbon. I, I don't know. I feel like as I grow up, I don't want to follow like a certain path. It's kind of like carbon, like you can mix it with anything to see what comes up. And so like I want to experiment like different things in science and I don't want to really stick on one path as I go through high school, go through college. That is awesome. I love it. So you can be a diamond or and you graphite can be... And a sugar or you can be carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's charcoal. Super cool you could be charcoal <laughs> so jen your word is uh aptamer 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 yeah that, that's a good one actually our that is a big thing in our group that's yes. yeah i love it well, i love I, it that's why like that is the most common word that shows up in any discussion of you is aptamer it's um really yeah 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 it's uh it's, it's, it's like a 
maybe you can, I, I know it's a short strand DNA molecule that can do some cool stuff, but maybe you can explain, like, how would you explain it just to the general public? Yeah, I could definitely talk about that. So I'm actually going to explain it by defining another term, which we've all heard a lot about, I think, uh, thanks to the pandemic, which is antibodies, right? Okay. So antibodies are molecules their body makes, they're made out of protein, and they are made to be able to, they have a sort of actual physical shape, but then also chemical properties, you know, they have different kind of functionalities displayed at different places on them. And that allows them to recognize very, very specific molecules that you might find in your body, actually molecules you shouldn't find in your body. And so antibodies can recognize something like a virus right. or a toxin or whatever that might be. And so those are really useful in a, a wide variety of different things. You know, we've seen them used in diagnostics assays. They can be used in therapeutics. They are the basically the basis of almost all clinical diagnostics, actually, right, or right. a huge, huge portion of clinical diagnostics. And antibodies work great, but they definitely have some limitations to them. They're expensive. They're not incredibly stable. So often you need to keep them cold. Otherwise they will unravel and fall apart. And I so a there's a lot of interest. Yeah, go let's ahead. Let's use nucleic acids instead. Yes, yes. that is aftermers. That is aptamers is to say, you know, let's use nucleic acids instead. And scientists aren't alone in doing that. And so um, Turk and Gold and Ellington and Shellstack together, well, not together, um, but working separately, but at the same time back in 1990, described this idea of, can we do this with nucleic acids instead? Can we make nucleic acids that will bind to specific molecules or proteins. And the way that they do that is through what's called a directed evolution or an in vitro selection process. And that just means that you take a whole bunch of different sequences, like trillions or more sequences, you know, quadrillions of sequences, and they all fold and have different shapes. But then the idea is that, well, okay, if you have quadrillions, there's probably at least one sequence in there that will bind to that small molecule that or that molecule. protein, and we just need to find it, right? Okay, um, it's a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack, but you got yeah. molecular biology on your side. And so there's ways to do that. And then those molecules are really useful in things like clinical diagnostics. But the super interesting thing is that biology already figured this out, you know, millions and millions of years ago. Right, and right. so there are aptamer sequences that occur naturally in living systems and are able to recognize, uh, most of them are in bacteria, but they do things like they might recognize a metabolite. And when they recognize and bind that metabolite, they signal for the cell to stop making that metabolite. So they serve as these little like regulators and switches to say, okay, we got, we got enough of whatever this is. We got enough folate for now. Let's stop making that. And, uh, you know, let's put our energy somewhere else for now. Wow. So, so Nafisa, yeah, is this they're a super cool. You want to get into if you study biochemistry? I do. I do. I think after reading up on Dr. Heemstra's research, I think now I'm really set on biochem. Like I, I really want to explore this. 
This is all biology under- does some amazing things. And, and if you work at the interface with chemistry, then it, it opens up even more space. This is all under the guise of field of supermolecular chemistry, right? The interactions between a discrete number of molecules. Yeah. In, in fact, if you asked me what our lab does, well, we're very interdisciplinary. So if you asked me what we do, I'd probably say, well, what, what do we not do um, within chemistry? Well, there are a few things we don't do. But if I really had to say what type of chemistry our lab does, I would call it bio supermolecular chemistry. So okay. supermolecular chemistry is thinking about how molecules interact and how we can use that to build functional systems. So we're essentially building with Lego bricks, but the Lego bricks are molecules. And then we are part of a sub, that's the area that I've always worked in throughout, you know, since I was an undergrad and been absolutely fascinated by. And then our subset of it also says, okay, and if we're going to talk about molecular recognition and self-assembly and how molecules recognize and bind to each other and fit together, biology is really, really, really good at that. The proteins and nucleic acids and carbohydrates and small molecules have all been evolved over millions and millions or billions of years to have these amazing interactions. And so in the field of biosupermolecular chemistry, we say, okay, we're gonna do, we're gonna build with Lego bricks, but those Lego bricks are going to be things like proteins and nucleic acids. That, that should be the motto of your group. It should say, biomolecules do amazing things. You should like have that. <gasps> I love it. We're gonna do that. We should, we should put it on right coffee mugs and, and t-shirts. And... Right above the Pokemon in your office. <laughs> yeah, the joke there, I mean, I, I don't think that was one of our original drawings, but we moved to Emory from University of Utah in 2017. And the joke initially was that this is what happens when the dry erase markers arrive before the lab equipment does. So, so you left University of Utah because they didn't want you to leave because they never took down your page on their website. <laughs> I think we're all, we're all really, uh, you know, slow on, on website maintenance. I know my group is. If you, uh, if, if you could look up your name, you'd still could probably fool someone into think you were still there. It's like a time capsule. Well, I will say, I mean, it was an amazing place to be. It, it was a really, really hard decision to leave. It, it did not come easily. And Emory is an amazing place to be too. Yeah. So we moved from one great place to another great place. But I will say in fairness too, that I was still technically a faculty member there until maybe even just last summer, because when we moved, some of the people from my group either needed to stay there or wanted to stay there. And so they were very, very kind and gave me a a adjunct appointment so that I could keep supervising the graduate students and stay the head of their thesis committees. And so that just expired last summer. Oh, so the other, the- the... Yeah, no, there's like a whole cottage industry of people who try to figure out out who's moving where. I mean, I think that when we moved, it was actually a really interesting experience for our group because when we were moving, the blogs were already saying where we that we were moving and where we were going. And we didn't even have an offer yet. It right. was, and we were choosing between a couple of different places. So it was far, far from settled. It's like three months before which, we decided and all of a sudden the internet knew. Was it like Chembarks or Chemjobber or where, where were they reporting on it? 
No, it was, it was not either of those because they're both very, very scholarly. It was when the, the bumper cars blog used to exist. It might still exist, but now they require proof. It's, it's been handed over through a few different people over the years. And, and actually, I think someone later told me that it was because I shared my story with them that when they took it over, they decided to you know, have a little bit more academic rigor with it and say, okay, I'm not posting this publicly until, you know, you give me proof. Like it's gotta be a tweet or a lab website or some sort of an official announcement. Mm -hmm. But it was an interesting experience because, right, we all know that there's good information on the internet and not so great information. And in fact, I've given talks before to my group about finding a job in chemistry. I actually call it careers in chemistry, facts, fiction, and what I read on the internet, because there's a lot of great information and there's a lot of not so great information. And so this was an interesting experience. I remember talking to the group about it and people had questions. I was like, no, no, don't worry. If we accept an offer, you will hear it from me first. But also I just said, okay, you know the real story of what's happening. You have the insider information and you can see all of the just wild things that people are saying online. There were like all these speculations in the comments about we were moving and why we're moving and none of it was accurate or very little of it was accurate. And I said, so this is a chance you have to know the real story and see what's being said. And now every time you see something like this on the internet, hold up that same filter to it and realize Realize that what you're seeing, there might be a very different real story behind it. Yeah, I don't know what, have you made some major career transitions and, and how did those go? I mean, I, I've, I've worked in a, in a lot of different fields in, in technology and in finance and education and digital education. So, um, you know, it's always was sort of unplanned. And um, I think, I think I, I like taking on new things, new, new projects are exciting. And, you know, that's why I was excited about ChemTalk because it was like, you know, so passionate about chemistry and to, I want people to feel that passion. And, and I feel like people don't know about um, how amazing it can be and how, you know, you can take allium, a liquid metal and melt it in your hand. And then you can combine it with aluminum foil and generate hydrogen gas right in front of you. And it's all safe and great. And nobody knows about that. But when I tell people they're, you know, they're like, why don't I know about this? So, um, so yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've done quite a few, quite a few career changes. Have you ever had one that you've doubted? where you made the change and then you thought, oh no, what have I done? I, I, I usually go all in. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm regrets a hard sheet to sleep on. I try not to look back and I, I just try to make the best, you know, I always try to look forward. I'm like, what's the best path forward? You know, like, cause we are where we are, right? So you're like, okay, 
how do I plan out? Where do I want to be? Do I want to work more? Do I want to work less? What kind of legacy do you want? You know, things like that. So um, I think that's the right way to look at it. That's extremely, extremely wise advice. In fact, I was talking with someone about this today because one of the big shifts that I've seen, obviously no generation is a monolith, but I think in, in our, our generation, I don't know if you had this experience, but your career was this very utilitarian sort of thing. I, I was raised to think, okay, you go to college, you can learn something so you can get a job. And the purpose of that job is for you to make money so that you can live in a house and have a car and have 2.1 children and someday send them to college. And that's the whole point of a career. And by the way, if you like what you do, that's kind of a bonus. You should try to find that. And I think now there's a, been a dramatic shift to your career should be your passion and you should really love what you do and you should feel a deep sense of purpose in it. And I think that that's healthy because I very much feel that. I love my job and what drives me to do my job is not, I mean, yes, it's nice that we have a home and I have a car to drive to work in and, you know, all of that stuff, that, that's all great. But I'm, that's a lot of jobs. And I love that my job is also something that I'm very, very passionate. I'm very passionate about mentoring. I'm very passionate about um, being part of, empowering the next generation of scientists. I'm passionate about doing chemistry research. I love building with biomolecular Lego bricks, right? It's super fun to, to get together and design projects on that. Um, and so I very much relate to, to this idea of doing what you're passionate about. But I think that the there's also been a downside to this in that the messaging has in some ways also become, yes, find the thing you're passionate about. And by the way, that's like your one true love. There is like your one calling in life and there's all these paths and only one of them is your passion. And if you don't find it, right, like you will be denied career fulfillment forever. Um, and, and I think that that's, maybe that's somehow turning around eventually as people realize, no, there's a lot of things I, I could love doing. Well, but I talked to a lot of students who have come up in that mindset and have right, been right. told that mindset. and. And, and, and it's like almost debilitating, right? Because if you don't find it and it's like, no, 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 there's lots of things you can be happy doing. Find one that you like. And if you don't like it, go find a different one. And it's okay. And you might do some that like you regret and you'd never do again. Yeah. And you could second guess it, but like life is a journey. It's a lot of fun. You only go around once. Have a good time with it. I mean, you, you told people, I think word for word that there's no perfect career path, right? It's yeah. all trade-offs and that's, you know, I mean, my advice for people and for like you, Nafisa, is you wanna be as educated as you can and have as many different skills as you can because then you, I mean, I think the, number, the group that can actually follow their passion and do what they enjoy, not everyone has that, option like some a lot of people yeah. like they just need a job to survive right I mean they're living yeah. to paycheck and to be able to have multiple options is um you know it's really lucky for people to, to have that not everyone has that so 
but I agree with you. Every path has trade-offs. Some you'll make more money. Some you have to work harder. Some you may enjoy more. Some are more social. So, um, yeah, there's there's nothing perfect because if if something is too enjoyable, then you start to realize that people will do it for free and it may not pay much. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's no free lunch. You know, it's it's yeah, it's all it's all a trade off. Yeah. And I think it's realizing that the things you enjoy may not be the things other people enjoy, right? We're, we're each different and there's different things that appeal to different people. And so finding, finding things that align with what you're most interested in. I like to say every job has, has good things and bad things. And the more you can learn about the different good things and bad things in different career paths, and then choose the one that has at least initially, has the good things that are really important to you and the bad things that you're most willing to tolerate. And that's a pretty good path towards, um, and then realizing that, yeah, again, no job is perfect. No matter what job you're in, there's some percentage of it that, that you know, hopefully is kind of fun and a pretty large percentage of it that, that's not so fun, but you do the not fun part in order to get the, the more fun part. Lisa, what do you think of all that? You're going to have to figure this out eventually, yeah. right? Extremely motivational. I'm going to look back on this and thank Dr. Heemstra because this is what I honestly need to hear. It is what I hear from everyone around me. And it just, it's even more inspirational to hear it from someone like you. So thank you. Oh, don't, don't thank well, her yet. You may end up somewhere yeah. you hate and you might think, oh, <laughs> it's all her fault. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're, you're doing a lot of writing though, right? Like you're writing for some science organizations and... Yeah, I am a blog writer at the Helix Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization focused on STEM in general. I'm a writer there, yes. Now, it's interesting you've done some blogging because I know someone else who used to be a blogger until the end of 2019. Jen, how come you stopped your blog? Well, I didn't necessarily stop my blog. It more just migrated. So okay, but uh, more the answer is, or the question should be, why did it really take you five years to start your blog? Ah, okay. <laughs> I started a blog when I started my academic career, and that I'll I will completely admit this. It was because another professor who I looked up to a lot in our field had a blog, and I was on his website and saw he had a blog, and I saw. Well, if that person has a blog, then I should have a blog too. And I would basically spend 364 days feeling guilty that I hadn't blogged yet that year. And then I would write a blog post. And then I would go another 364 days feeling guilty. And so it was this kind of aimless sort of thing. And then I started doing professional development talks for our group because I realized there's all this knowledge about how to be a researcher that we all pick up along the way and we disseminate in these random one-on-one -on -one conversations, that's not efficient or equitable. I'm going to start presenting every week or most weeks at my own group meeting to share this knowledge. And so I started doing that. And then I realized, ha ha, I've had a blog for six years and I never knew what to do with it. And this is what I should do with it. And so I started writing up those presentations onto my blog. But then after about 
two years of that, yeah, sometime around early 2019, I was approached by CNE News Magazine, and they asked me to start writing a monthly column that was fairly in line with my blog. And so at that point, I thought, well, I can't do, I'm barely hanging on putting together one blog post a month. If I now need to write one column a month, um, that will functionally take the place of my blog. And I actually have permission from them to repost my columns on my blog. Oh, nice. But as you have pointed out, since COVID started, I have been really bad at catching up on that. But also it's, um, those are publicly available. And so it's essentially a blog in that there's a a website you can go to for um, my office hours column and you can view all of the different columns. Oh yeah, I've seen seen a lot. So so my blog just moved a little bit. Nice. I have some random- Especially like the name of your blog. (laughs) Things that change the way I think. (laughs) Thanks. You know, that actually is credit to my PhD advisor said that. And I thought it was so brilliant. I was applying for jobs and I had to write these proposals and I sent him my proposals and he wrote back with a few comments. And he said, think about how you're going to change the way people think about science. And I remember in the moment, I was like, that is so brilliant. Oh, I'm going to hold on to that. It became the top of my blog. And then years later, I realized that that actually comes from the NSF review criteria. Mm-hmm. So still credit to my PhD advisor that he saw it there and he realized that is a brilliant way to think about it and held on to it and shared it with me. And then, yeah, it became the title of my blog. And then five years later, I was reviewing NSF grants and I saw, and they're like, how will this change the way people think about science? Oh, now I know where that came from. I have some random trivia for you. So your the the keyword that your blog ranks highest for on Google is what are you training for? If you type that into Google, you are like the number eight result out of the top ten. That is fascinating. Yeah. That's because really interesting. You do like cycling and swimming and rock climbing. Are you competitive? And running. Oh no, not wanting to do as good as you can for yourself. Like, do you like want to always improve your time? That's that kind of competitiveness. Um, You know, I'd say it depends on the sports. Okay. So for running and biking, absolutely. Yes. It's, you know, I have a goal to run a Boston qualifier time in a marathon this fall and, you know, or I want to reach a PR or whatever that is Mm -hmm. climbing. I would say I have, entered competitions climbing. I have won stuff at amateur climbing competitions, but climbing is a little different. I've been climbing for 27 years of my life. So the better part of my life and climbing is kind of like a best friend to me. It's been there through some really good times. It's been there through some really bad times. It's the thing I go and do when I I'm struggling. It's the thing I go and do when I'm feeling great about things. And so that's the one sport that I do where it's not just a sport or not just a physical activity. It's, it's way too special and way too personal for me. So when things are going well in life, then sure. I, I think, oh, how hard can I climb? Can I do harder routes, enter a competition? But when I've been at some really hard times in my life, Climbing is my self-care and my well-being and in a lot of ways, an old friend that I go and spend time with. And I'll just go to the gym just to to do anything and to have fun and just to move and to not think about work. 
Yeah, I know in, in a lot of your writing, you talk about like embracing adversity and learning from it and embracing failure. And I, I just wondered if maybe some of that came from your experiences in, in, in doing the, the running and cycling and climbing. And sometimes you do fail in a goal and um, you try to mm. get better, you know, you try to keep improving, looking forward. It definitely applies there. I would say that my approach to adversity comes much more from life experiences. Okay, okay. It's those life experiences you have and then you look back and either as as horrible as it was, it often still grew you, you know, grew me in some way or I made it through something that I never thought I could make it through. And then that's empowering. Or sometimes it's just the set of circumstances that, that shifts things for you. And so I grew up thinking that, yes, I can go to college, but then I should be meeting a husband and getting married and having babies and staying home and, and not working. And I completely respect the people who choose to do that um, of all genders who choose to do that. I think it is just such a phenomenally important thing to raise children and incredibly, incredibly impactful. Uh, it's an amazing way to spend your life, but it wasn't the thing that I personally want. I wanted to have kids, but I also wanted to have a career. And I really struggled for a long time, you know, I went to, through undergrad, I went to grad school thinking that the, the end game was, well, eventually I'll have, we'll have kids and then I'll quit my job and I'll stay home. And, and that will be kind of the end of my career for, you know, a good while. Yeah. Well, no, but, but, you know, the reason why it didn't happen, it isn't like one day I just said, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go for it. It was actually because I finished grad school and I thought, okay, well, now is the time to have kids and then realized that maybe we can't. Had a doctor tell me, maybe, maybe you can't. And that actually was one of many things that just kind of broke me because there was all of this tension of thinking that if we, if I had a family, then I couldn't have my career and just feeling stuck feeling in a place where I was going to have to choose between those things right. and being really upset about that choice for years and years and years and years and years living in this tension. And then it all just boils up to this thing of, okay, now it's time to, we're going to resolve this tension because it, it's time. And then, you know, a couple more years and realizing, oh, that thing I've been feeling all this tension over for all of these years now I can't even do that thing. So where does that leave, leave all of this? And, and adversity in that case had this really clarifying effect. It, it started a lot of great conversations and a lot of soul searching and a lot of thinking and led to, yeah, no, I, I don't have to make that choice. Right. And I'm not going to make that choice. And I'm going to, you know, we realize we can probably never have kids. And so, okay, but even if we do, like, I, I want this career and, and I should run after this. 
And then eventually we were very fortunate to have children, incredibly fortunate to have children. And, and now I have that, but I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't gone through what I did with infertility, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a similar experience. I thought it was going to be very difficult for my wife and I to have kids. That's what the doctors told her. And for some miraculous reason, it was, it was very easy for us, but it was stressful thinking that it may be very hard or may not happen when that's sort of your plan. But so you have some great things, accomplishments to be proud of the kids, the career. Um, that's great. I mean, you, you, you feel like people should be proud and talk about their accomplishments, right? Oh, I think we all should, should be proud of our accomplishments. And I think we should all, I think it's important to think about what accomplishments we're going to feel proud of. Yeah. If we never think about it, then the world around us has this way of defining it for us. In my yeah. field, the default is the things you're proud of are the papers you publish and the grants and awards that you get. And right. I'm, I'm proud of my career, but not for those things. I mean, those papers are cool because I love the science we do. But if there's any joy in the papers, it's because of the success of the people who did the work. The, yeah. the accomplishments that I'm proud of are the people who I've had the privilege to mentor and be colleagues with in our lab. And all of the joy in that part of my job comes from seeing those individuals learn and grow and graduate and go on to other places and be wildly successful and do things out in the world that I know that I could never do. And that is the career success for me. That's the real, real heart of it. Things like the promotion of full professor, like, yeah, that, that feels great. And it's not lost on me how unbelievably, unbelievably fortunate I am to be in this job. You know, as you pointed out, that there's a lot of people who have to take jobs um, just to, to make sure that they can pay the bills. And so I'm very fortunate to be in the job that I, I have. Um, and it was fun to get the promotion, but really the fun part of the promotion was to be able to celebrate it with the entire group because it's, it's not my success, it's the entire group's success. And it's, it's their achievement in what they've done with research. I've heard that one of the best things for a teacher or a mentor is when one of their students' accomplishments exceeds theirs, right? When someone surpasses. Yes. Like that's just, that's the best feeling. Oh, it's the best. Yes. The best. It's such a good feeling or whatever success they have. It's seeing people going off and being amazing in areas career areas that I've never even touched. You know, someone in our lab, a graduate of our lab is a science writer. That's amazing. Or science communicator. There are people who are starting companies. There's people working in industry doing really phenomenal things. It's so much fun to see all of the different places that people go with their science degrees. And, and you talk a lot about mentoring and adversity, like on social media. I mean, basically on Twitter. I mean, 
how do you, why do you think you've, you've done well and you have this large audience on Twitter that, that you're known for? Like, what do you, do you think you're, you're just being open about things or do you think there's certain subjects that really you talked about other people didn't? Cause interesting question. I will preface all of it by saying that there's probably a lot of randomness to that. I, I, I envision that in some sort of an alternate universe, I could have started an account on Twitter, posted all of the things that I did and have like 22 followers. Right. And five of those are my direct family members or something like that. So I think that there's, there's definitely a lot of a lot of randomness to it. If there is anything to it, I, I think it's what you hit on that th when I started posting pretty actively on Twitter about three years ago, there were definitely other people who were doing what I did, Yeah, but there weren't weren't a lot and, and there especially weren't a lot in the chemistry community maybe right and so I'm basically a chemistry professor who likes to talk about my feelings in the public right right, right. And there's definitely more to it than that because there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who do that and who do that way better than I do and it's so much fun to follow them and see yeah. all of the stuff that they're posting but even on a broader level there's all this stuff around how we do research that's separate from the re research itself and we just need to talk about it more because it's so incredibly important sure, and sure. Twitter is a great place to do that if you if you talk to enough of people eventually some people aren't going to like you right like is like what's that like oh for sure like, it's, is, do you take it personally or is it just? Oh, we could have a whole conversation about that. It's, you have to, well, I think that in general, in the field that I'm in, you have to get used to a lot of people telling you what they think about how you do what you do every day. Okay. Because that's just a part of our world. And in some ways, Twitter is an, as my following has grown, it's become an even much more magnified version of that. Yeah. That no matter what I post, people will probably have thoughts about it. And some of those thoughts will be positive, but not always. And learning to navigate that, it's definitely been a big learning process. But I would say it's been something that in the end has been really healthy because it's forced me to learn how to stay open to feedback because yeah. I'm a highly imperfect person, right? We all have places where we need to learn and grow and people sharing what they think about something you've said is a great way for that to happen but if you leave yourself open to absorb everything that people say, it it's just absolutely soul crushing. Well, or some can feedback be can be mean, right? Sometimes feedback can be mean, not. Yeah, sometimes it's more constructive than other feedback. But I would argue that even a lot, a flood of 
constructive feedback could probably still, it can still be challenging. But yeah, definitely, you know, if somebody shows up and leaves a comment 100% just to be mean, that was really hard for me at the start. I'm not going to lie. That was super, super challenging. And it's still kind of, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't still get to me a little bit, right? I'm a human being. I'm, you know, when, when your account hits a certain size or, you know, especially when I got verified, I think it's easy for people to run to the conclusion that you have some social media manager who's really running the account for you yeah. or that you're just impervious to all of this. And it's like, no, it's literally me with my iPhone. It's, yeah. it's me and all of my feelings and imperfect humanity clutching my iPhone in the morning and trying to put some words out there that might encourage someone else in the same ways that other people have encouraged me. And when someone says something that is really just aimed at, at tearing down and not growth or learning, it's hard. But some of the wisest advice, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, and I love hearing people who also have big followings talking about this. And people have much, much bigger followings than me talk about this. And the thing that I hear from all of them is just you know, the things people say about you, both good and bad, are equally uninformative about who you are as a person. Yeah. Neither of them provides you accurate information. And most of it has more to do with that person than yeah, it does with you. To position themselves a certain way, like it might be for their own status, they're trying to move it a certain direction, right? And define that by how I they respond to the people. Know. Yeah. I think, it's you know, I, weird. I don't want to say that weird. like nice things that people say are disingenuous because I go on and, and say right. nice things to the people who I really appreciate. Sure, but they could be. They know it's genuine. They could be. But I think, you know, they're really nice, but I think that they, I think it's, it's really kind and it's really encouraging. Thing, but it's a poor, both the nice things and the not so nice things are a poor way to define your own self-worth, yeah. the things that people say about you. And so it's being on social media and having it get to where it is has in some ways made me more of an introvert and a little bit less social, I think too, because it's forced me to really find and rely on a tight-knit group of people where I know I can trust the things that that they say to me or the advice that they give me or the feedback that they give me yeah so but that's but it's all been good it's I think that I wish I would have realized sooner in my life that I can't live my life being concerned about other people's opinions of me. So Nafisa, if you are learning that, you are way ahead of me. If you're picking that up now, you are decades ahead of me. Yeah. Have you figured out that Twitter is not real life, Nafisa? <laughs> to some extent, I don't really use it, but social media in general, I, I've started to pick up that it really doesn't define you. 
Yeah, it doesn't define. I will say though, it's it's the tough thing about social media though, is it's not real life, but it bumps up against real life. That sometimes there's things that are said about me on there. There are things I'm an imperfect person, right? So some not so great things are said about me that are probably true. But also I know for a fact that a lot of things a lot of negative things are said about me that absolutely are not true and it's not real life but then sometimes the people you know in real life see that and it it, in a weird way that's probably the the most challenging thing about being on social media is when it does collide with your real life like somebody said something about me that was very negative and one of my kids friends parents saw it and approached me about it I realized oh my goodness that I almost quit Twitter that day I will say because I thought my kids didn't sign up for this if my kids might have to hear something about me from their friends at school because of this that's not fair and what is that that that's not right and so it's challenging but yeah it's it's good to remember that it is absolutely not real life for better or worse you have to figure out how to use the power of twitter and the 82,000 audience for good it's it's just me with my iphone not much fancy about it but it's a privilege to have that and i my goal my whole goal is to use it well you know whether it was random that it worked out that way or or whatever it was. My whole goal is to make someone's day better yeah. or to offer, you know, also to like have jokes about carbon copies because I think that um, chemistry professors need to look like human That's beings really a little bit more often as well. Um, and so I post silly things about my family or rock climbing or whatever so that people know that I don't take myself so seriously. Well, but mostly, yeah, it's the goal is to spread the encouragement that other people give to me. Well, hopefully soon you'll be posting about making your own rock climbing chalk in the kitchen with the kid. I would love that. I'm excited to do that. Well, I'll be on my Twitter hiatus, but when I come back from it. Yeah, when you when you come back from it. Um, One of the other experiments that my kids love the best is when we made copper powder from aluminum foil in the kitchen by uh, displayment reaction. My son was so excited that he could just actually make elemental copper um that's cool we uh now that we're we're starting to get a little bit of funding rolling and just tell me what you want to do and i'll one of us will send you everything you need if you need some some gallium or some tin chloride or some copper sulfur we'll we'll get you hooked up there's so many cool experiments we've been doing we just got a bunch of rare earth elements so i was I experienced failure with samarium the other day. You know, I read that samarium reacts slowly with cold water, quickly with hot water and vigorously with dilute sulfuric acid. So I was testing it and put in the dilute sulfuric acid and it fizzed for like five seconds and then nothing happened. And I'm like, failure, is this even samarium? But when I researched it, oh my God, I learned so much. I was reading all these papers about synthesis of of samarium too and you know the special conditions you need and i looked up all these solubilities and realized that samarium sulfate had an inverse solubility curve where it was actually 
practically insoluble in, in, in hot water. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, and then I went back and now I have a, a tube full of really nice yellow samarium sulfate. And I have all these further experiments that I'm going to try to get it into a plus two oxidation state. That's vibrant red that I'd say very few people, um, have experience creating i mean you know cool. and it's just it's exciting so at you know at chem talk you know the traditional approach to chemistry education is, is show them some flame tests show them throwing sodium in water and they say "Ooh, ah and then they move on and we want people to really you know, hands-on and get a love for molecules and elements and crystals and um, the history of chemistry and what's exciting things that are going on now. So there's just, there's so many ways that we think that are just not being addressed to really get people excited um, and think of chemistry as more than just something they hated or a joke about breaking bad and making meth and all that. So, yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing. And I think too the the freedom of research that chemistry isn't following the instructions or chemistry research isn't following the instructions. It's saying, well, what if and and seeing what happens. And obviously, there's a lot of safety reasons and a lot of safety that has to go into to vetting that what if. But I'll say that for me, that was the thing that got me hooked. I mean, yeah, it's fun to mix things and run a reaction and then get some bright yellow crystal and solid out of yeah. it. But it was this idea of, you know, me in college and most of my life, people have been telling me what I had to do. And all of a sudden it wasn't about that. You know, even the lab classes I took, the lab classes are like, you're going to mix this and with this, and then you're going to do this and then you're going to do that. And then you better get that crystal and yellow solid. <laughs> Otherwise you're getting a B, right? right. Um, that, that was again, what I thought chemistry lab was. And then being able to go into a lab where maybe there was a, okay, you need to make this molecule, but then when it doesn't work, it's like, well, how, how will you troubleshoot it? And right. that idea that I could go home in the evening and be thinking to myself, okay, well, what if I do this? Okay, well, what about that? How yeah. would I figure out what's going wrong? How can I find a way around it? And then saying, ha ha, I think this is the way I'm gonna solve this problem. And then that idea that I could walk into the lab the next day and set up an experiment that nobody wasn't that anyone told me how to do it. It right. was, that it was my own idea. That was what got me. I just said, Oh my goodness, this is so cool. I can, I can have an idea. I can walk in the lab. I can test out my own idea and usually it's not going to work, but when it does, Oh my goodness, that's so good. And I think anything you can do to, to help other people see that that's, that's one of the other really, really fun things about science, I think is, would be amazing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just, we know that feeling is amazing, but people just aren't exposed to it as much. They're exposed to video games. They're told that everything is, is, is toxic and 
there's lots of great science you could do and never, you know, you don't need to have thallium or arsenic or be producing toxic gases. Like you can just do so much great science with, um, you know, you can just do things with, with bismuth, which is non-toxic and, you know, um, making Prussian blue, like you mentioned, Nafisa. I mean, ferric ferrous cyanide is used to treat thallium poisoning because it absorbs, you know, cesium and, and thallium and any, any, any metal ion in the plus one oxidation state. Um, and by the way, talking about predicting chemical reactions, every time you make a ferrous cyanide, it absorbs other molecules into its structure slightly That's differently. That's cool. So you're gonna come out with a different compound depending on like how quickly you mix things and the reactions. We just, we, we think chemistry is so amazing and the team is, uh, yeah, I'm so, so proud of all their, their work and it would be great sometime, you know, to get your advice on how we can even do a better job and reach in a, 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 because we, we've done this survey, we've surveyed hundreds of college students, and I think it's like 90% of them in our survey say that the perception of chemistry is that it's hard, it's difficult to learn, it's a weed out. Um, mm -hmm. And people want to fix it. And people want to get involved, college students want to get involved, they don't just want, you know, professors and academics making decisions for them they for them yeah. they want to they want to have a say and that's why you know um they they don't want people to experience the same troubles that that they had yeah yeah i will say one thing um that made us when we thought about moving one thing that that made us really want to come to emory is that our faculty are a group of people who all experienced that undergraduate curriculum and realized that it wasn't great and it could be so much better. And we're hearing from the students that, that it could be so much better. Yeah. And so shortly before we came here, the faculty voted to completely overhaul the curriculum. Like, bulldoze, literally built, well, not literally, but bulldoze, figuratively bulldoze the, the curriculum, gen chem, ochem, all of that. And then take all those pieces and build them back up into something that would be much more engaging for students. Yeah. I mean, yes, you absolutely need to learn about equilibrium and solubility yeah. and chemical mechanisms and reactivity and orbitals and all of those things are unbelievably important. But as a faculty, we really ask the question, is there a more engaging way to teach all of that and a way that we can help students learn better? And can we rearrange it and then wrap all of it in ties to real life examples yeah. of of where chemistry shows up every day and so we've been teaching that curriculum for about four years now and it's definitely a work in progress it takes you know just like any experiment it takes some time to refine it and i'm sure it will be a decades long effort to keep refining it and yeah. keep bringing it to where um, we want it to be but but the people in I, I will give all the credit to the people in my department who have pioneered that and the work that they've done is, is 
I think, transformative for undergraduate education here. I'd, I'd love to see that curriculum, what you guys done with it. And I, I also love to share our own experiences. At, yeah, I would love that. Well, our curriculum is on, on our website. So if you go to chemistry.emory.edu, I think it's under maybe undergraduate or something like that. Or if you just Google chemistry unbound, there was uh, Tracy McGill, my colleague, my amazing, amazing colleague who really led the charge to envision this new curriculum. Um, Tracy, along with a group of people in the department wrote up an article in Journal of Chemistry Education, yep. uh, maybe two years ago that outlines the curriculum and the process. And so there's a lot of information there and then, and then some on our website as well. Nice, I'll check it out. And what I'd like to propose and maybe your colleagues would be open to it, is that a certain, maybe it's like one class or one week of a chemistry lab is, is dedicated not to doing an experiment that teaches equilibrium or teaches them thermodynamics and it has to be the coffee calorimeter, but just because it's just something that makes people say, wow, chemistry is really amazing. I really wanna stick with this. And that's, I think the missing link is that everyone is so stuck on it has to teach something from this yeah, chapter yeah. and this chapter. Yeah. And- um, We've broken out of all of that. Well, we're working to break out of all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we Think about labs and think about research-based labs. Um, we're working to make some of the labs research-based so that students are getting really early experiences with research activities. Yeah, it's a fun place to be. And I, I give, again, all the credit to my colleagues in the department who have led this charge. It's, it's we, we came in as it was all coming together and already together. And so we just get to be participants in it. And it's, it's a great, great experience. Well, as, as we wrap up, Nafisa, is there anything that you wanted to, to bring up with, with Jen before, uh, before the, the internet world kick us, off, uh, kick us off from using up all the bandwidth in the United States? Um, I'd say we co covered so much in this interview. I'd say I learned so much. So you were such a motivational person and I'm going to look back on this interview one day and say, I'm so glad I did this with Scott. <laughs> so thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. Well, likewise, thanks for the opportunity to meet you. It's so inspirational to see the next generation of scientists and to see that the future is so incredibly bright, Nafisa. If, if you're one of the people who is going to be coming up through through the career world and thinking about your thinking about research already. And the more you learn and the further you advance in your career, you're just going to keep innovating. And it's so much fun to see what the future holds and to know that that, that future is going to be in your hands. Yeah, people like Nafisa are the future. And it's just, it's so inspiring. I mean, when when I was starting Chem Talk, I didn't know if anyone would want to be a part of it. And the results have been overwhelming. People like Nafisa and so many dozens of, of other students. And now we have grad students and postdocs joining and wanting to help out and really identifying with the mission and wanting to volunteer. I mean, right now, everyone is, is a volunteer. And I think that speaks so much. Fantastic. Yeah. This was so much fun. We need to do a part two later in the summer. 
<laughs> there's so much. This we is a lot about. of fun. Oh my goodness. There's so much we didn't talk about, but this yeah, is a lot of fun. There's so much. We need to do a part two. One of our um, members of our advisory board, Lauren Zarzar, she's at Penn State. She's a chemistry professor. She actually did her PhD at Harvard at the same time you were there. Yes. And I told her I was interviewing you and um, we were having an interview with you. And I said, you know, do you know, do you know, Jen? And she said, no, I don't know her personally, but have fun. So did that fill you with hope or dread? Definitely hope. No, no, no. This is. No, this was so much fun for me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jen. All right. Thank you so much. Great to meet both of you. Have a great night. If you would like to hear more information about Jen Heemstra and her research, you can go to heemstralab.com or check out the information in the show notes. Don't forget to check out ChemTalk on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, or go to chemistrytalk.org to check out our new content. Thanks for listening, and make sure to tune in next time for another riveting interview. Thank you.